Let's begin this morning by opening to Matthew 14, starting in verse 34. We're going to look at verses 14.34 to chapter 15, verse 9 this morning. But I want to read, as we do, just to kind of set the whole context, I want to read all the way to verse 20. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's the section we're going to look at today, but let's, let's read on for the whole context, starting in verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this, saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Well, I called this sermon, The Empty Worship of Hypocrites Who Invalidate God's Word by Their Traditions. The Empty Worship of Hypocrites Who Invalidate God's Word by Their Traditions. Now, one thing that the careful reader of Scripture will notice is that God is concerned about His worship. He's called on numerous occasions, He's called a jealous God. And he's a God who will not give his glory to another. He will not give his praise to carved idols. In the Old Covenant, he gave detailed instructions to Israel on every detail of the tabernacle and for every aspect of the sacrificial system. In Exodus 24 and verse 40, Yahweh tells Moses, and see to it, or see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. 
In other words, God's telling Moses that, that he's to do everything according to the pattern that Moses was seen or that Moses had seen on the mountain. And so God gives specific detailed instructions to Israel on how his worship is to be, how the temple is to, to be made. Every aspect of the temple system was designed by God. Every sacrifice was instituted by God for every situation. How they were to do everything was laid out according to God's word. In Leviticus chapter 10, two of the sons of Aaron, the, the priest, made a, a, some kind of an offering that the Lord had not commanded them. And so they had kind of broken from this pattern that the Lord had given to Moses. And, and actually, why don't you go ahead and let's turn there. Let's look at Leviticus Chapter 10. As I sometimes do, we're going to have a little bit of a longer introduction this morning, but Leviticus chapter 10, here's what it, it says here. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now, it's, it's literally there, they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, this incident is repeated a couple of times in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord, when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And again, Numbers 26, 61 says, but Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu sought to worship God in a way that God did not prescribe, in a way that he had not commanded them to. Now, at other times in Israel's history, as we're thinking about the worship of God, at other times in, in the history of the nation, they followed what God prescribed, but they worshipped in a wrong manner. They had a, a wrong attitude about it. And, and to see that, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 11, the Lord says here, He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In verse 13, He says, Bring no more vain offerings. He says their, their increase is an abomination to him. His soul hates their new moons and appointed feasts. At the end of verse 14, it says, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, why are these things a burden to the Lord? In fact, the Lord had commanded these very sacrifices. And so why are they a burden to the Lord? Because Israel went through the religious ceremony, but they didn't walk in obedience. They were unrighteous. They were full of sin. If you look down at verse 19, it says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. And so Israel was unwilling and disobedient, but they continued to perform the religious ceremonies and the Lord hated it. His soul hated it. Isaiah speaks of this wrong attitude again in chapter 29, which is quoted in our text. Chapter 29, verse 13 of Isaiah. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Or consider Isaiah 58, instructions on fasting. Yahweh tells Isaiah there, or Israel there, um, Isaiah 58, starting at verse Starting at verse 1, it says, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And so the Lord does not accept hypocritical worship where the people go through the motions, even being quite zealous for the motions, even being quite quite eager to, to perform those ceremonies, but the Lord is against this kind of worship when the people don't have the heart for it, when they don't have a heart of obedience. And so Israel was zealous for the external things, the fasting and the sacrifices and the prayers, but internally they they were far from God. Deuteronomy 12 summarizes that well, and let's, let's go ahead and turn back over there. Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 31, 31 and 32. The Lord is speaking here about the practices of the surrounding nations. And then in verse 31, he says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In other words, don't worship the Lord in the way that the nations around you are, have worshiped him. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And so the Lord does not want Israel to worship in the way of the surrounding nations. Instead, they're to to worship in the way that God has commanded them. And they're to be careful to do it. They're not to add anything to it or take anything from it. Now, in the New Testament, it's it's very similar. Our, our worship is, is, of course, somewhat different because the Messiah has come and he has fulfilled the law and he is our perfect sacrifice. We have a, a new priesthood and a new priest and a, a new covenant, but, but still God has ordained how we are to worship him because God cares about the form of our worship and God cares about the spirit of our worship. He cares about the, the way that we do it and he, he cares about the manner in which it's done. In fact, why don't we turn over to the, the gospel of John and, and look at chapter 4. This is the account of the Samaritan woman. 
Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. True worship is to be done according to the truth. We must worship the the true God according to how He revealed Himself to us in His Word. He must really reveal to us the way to worship Him. We, We have no way of knowing how to worship God unless He reveals to us how to worship Him. We can't worship Him truly unless we worship Him in the way that He tells us to do so. And so we're to worship in truth. We're also to worship in spirit. We must be born again. We need to have salvation and sanctification in order to worship God rightly. God is spirit and, and we must be made spiritual in salvation to have the right attitudes towards Him in our worship. And so what we see again in the New Testament is that God has worked in even greater ways to bring about the worship that he desires. He has saved his people to teach us the truth and to make us new creations in Christ in order that we might worship him according to his word. He has revealed himself to us through his son that we might know him truly. And he has given us his spirit that we might worship him in spirit. And so the only way that we can rightly worship God is if God reveals to us how we are to worship Him. Now the Reformers, they understood this principle and these principles, and they they wrote about it in their confession. This is from the the second, I'm going to give you a quote from the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which at this point in that confession, it's really the same as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and, and here's what they say, and I'll kind of pause and explain at a couple of points. They say this, quote, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has, and I'm going to make it into maybe proper English as I go, but the, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. In other words, we can see from creation that there's a God who created and made the world, and, and we can see certain of his attributes as well. And they go on to tell us more about this God. And so let me start again from the beginning. They say the the light of nature shows that there's a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might." And so according to this confession of faith, there's a a God and he's worthy of worship. And I I think we know this and we even read this in in Romans chapter 1 that that creation declares the glory of God and that we can know him to a certain extent through the creation. And so God is is there and he's worthy of worship and, and this confession continues with a but. They say, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations, the devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in holy scriptures. 
not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so the authors of, of this statement of faith recognize that there are acceptable and unacceptable ways of worshiping the true God. The acceptable way is the way that is instituted by God himself according to his word, or as they say, limited by his own revealed will. The unacceptable ways are according to the imaginations and devices of men, the suggestions of Satan, or under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now this is what was became known as the regulative principle. I don't know if you would have ever heard of that before, the regulative principle. And the regulative principle is, is basically that our worship must be done according to the Word of God and not according to our own thoughts and desires. You know, God must expressly command us how to worship Him according to His will. And so our, our worship must only consist of that which God expressly commanded. Again, that's the regulative principle. Now, there's some things that, that God hasn't commanded that, that involve our worship. And, and the London Baptists, they called these the circumstances of our worship. Things like where we meet or what time we meet or how long or who does what. There's, there's some, some freedom along those lines. And those are to be ordered, they say, by the light of nature and, and Christian prudence. And we're free to make decisions on, on some of those circumstances that God hasn't expressly commanded. But other than those, our worship of God must be according to what God has instituted in His Word. And so what I'm trying to kind of show you this morning right now is, is that in the Old Testament, God cared about His worship. And in the New Testament, God cares about His worship. And he gave exact commands and descriptions to show us how to worship him acceptably, how to live for him in this world in a way that glorifies him, how to know him truly, how to glorify him with our lives. God God tells us these things in his word. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes in our passage today, today, they've begun to worship according to their own imaginations. And they have required what God has not required in the worship and and lives of his people. And Jesus says their worship is vain. They're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They've exalted their traditions above the word of God. And they've even gone so far in this that they've even dared to make void the word of God. That's in our passage in verse 6. In other words, they've declared God's word to be invalid or even unlawful. And they are hypocrites because they, they, sh- they have a show of religion. They're very zealous about, about the washing of hands, but their hearts are not really for God. And they don't follow what God has revealed because they've put their own ideas, their own traditions above the word of God. And Jesus has no hesitation in calling them out for this. He has no hesitation in rebuking them for this hypocrisy. And he says their worship is vain, which means that it's empty. It's useless. Now we'll look at what the was happening with the Pharisees in a moment. But first we need to look at verses 34. So if you're back in Matthew chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 34 to 36 of Matthew 14. 
the men of Gennesaret give us a, a bit of a contrast to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And so first of all, in our outline this morning, we're going to see the recognition of the Gennesaret men. They, they recognize something about Jesus. The recognition of the Gennesaret men. And what we see here is that they recognize something, maybe not everything about Jesus, but they recognize something about Jesus that the Pharisees seem utterly blinded to. Jesus and his disciples, you'll remember, have have crossed the lake in the middle of the night. They just fed the 5,000. They're now crossing the lake. Jesus walked on the water. It was in the fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And now they arrive at Gennesaret. And again, they they seem to get no rest here. Remember, they were trying to get rest. Eventually here, they're going to go and uh, and go into Gentile country where they're going to get some rest. But in verse, starting in verse 34... When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now we've seen a few kind of short summaries like this one, where where it kind of Matthew summarizes Jesus' works in an area. Gennesaret is a, a beautiful and a fruitful plain on the west of the Sea of Galilee. It's just a little bit south of Capernaum. It's a, a fruitful land with, with vineyards and, and really a, a beautiful place. It's part of Galilee, and, and we already know that the word about Jesus has spread through all Galilee. And so these people, they recognize Jesus, and they see that he was in their region. And so they, they sent word all around, and they brought to him all who were sick. Now, earlier in, in Matthew, we met a woman who had suffered uh, 12 years, who had a discharge of blood. And in Matthew 9.20, she came up and touched him and touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. For she had said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And that lady was made well. Now, she would have been viewed as by the Pharisees as unclean. She would have been viewed by the law as unclean and touching her would have made you unclean even if it was only the fringe of your garment that, that she had touched or that you had touched her. But again, what we've seen over and over again in Matthew is that when Jesus touches someone, he makes them clean rather than them making him unclean. Now perhaps these Gennesaret men had had heard this story because they implore Jesus, they they beg him to let them touch the hem of his garment. And obviously Jesus allowed them to do so. And again, in verse 36, as many as touched it were made well. And this is really a remarkable way of healing. If you think about it, just, just touch his cloak and everyone who did that was made well. They were healed. Now what's interesting at, at this point though is that the religious people of that day would would not have allowed anyone unclean to touch them. And, and they were often hesitant to get into a large group because you just never knew if somebody in that group might be unclean. And so the, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes would have kept themselves away from the crowd. But Jesus, in compassion, he allowed the crowds to touch him. And he, he doesn't seem to be worried about this, this legalistic ceremonial uncleanness. 
Our our Lord's view on cleanness is much different than that of the Pharisees, and he's going to explain that in the passage that we're going to look at next week. And so the, the people of Gennesaret, they recognize Jesus as a healer, but probably not as Messiah or as a Savior. But they went much further than the Pharisees who were really blinded by their religious traditions. And, and it doesn't say anything about Jesus healing anyone of the Pharisees. And so we're going to go now to chapter 15. And we're going to see, first of all here, which is number two in your outline, the accusation of the Pharisees and scribes in verses 1 and 2. The accusation of the Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees don't even acknowledge Jesus as a healer. They're, they're blinded by their tradition and they continue to their, their search to accuse Jesus of some fault. And this is really what religious hypocrisy always does. It, it looks to find fault in others. If you go back to chapter 12 and if you look at verse 14... It says there, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And so the Pharisees uh, accused him of associating with tax collectors and sinners. That's earlier in Matthew 9.11. In Matthew 9.34 and 12.24, they said that he cast out demons by the prince of demons. In Matthew 12 and verse 2, they accused his disciples of work on the Sabbath because they were, they were plucking little heads of grain as they walked through the field, probably rolling them in their hands and then popping them in their mouth as they, they walked through the fields on the Sabbath. Jesus told them that day that he was Lord of the Sabbath, but none of these accusations have really stuck so far. And so today they have a new accusation for Jesus. Again, in our text, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now get this, this group of Pharisees and scribes, they came all the way from Jerusalem to accuse Jesus of his disciples not washing their hands according to the tradition. Now, the fact that they came from Jerusalem indicates that this was likely an official or at least a semi-official delegation from Jerusalem. People are talking about Jesus from as far away as the capital city of Jerusalem, and they're discussing his ministry, and, and really they're, they're looking to find faults. They're, they're looking to find ways to accuse him of wrongdoing. And somehow along the way, they noticed that his disciples were not washing properly. Now, this has nothing to do with cleanliness in the, in the sense of hygiene. There's no Old Testament laws about washing hands before eating. The only laws about washing hands were for the priests, and, and that was before Aaron or the sons of Aaron, the priests were to go into the tent of meeting. They were to, to wash their hands and their feet in a, in a ceremonial manner. This is Exodus 30, if you're interested, Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21, talk about this. Exodus 40, verses 30 to 32, talk about this. And so those are the only regulations about washing hands. The, the priests would wash their hands before they went to meet God in the tent of meeting. Now, there's some other regulations about ceremonial washing, ceremonial baths, if someone was unclean, but that's not at all what's, what's in view here. But it seems what's happened is that the Pharisees have extended this practice of priestly washing 
to every Israelite and, and required it before every meal. Now, the common people, apparently, we don't think actually were, were really doing this at this time, but for sure the scribes and the Pharisees really insisted on this ceremonial washing. Our text in verse 2 literally says, when they eat bread, and, and where eating bread there stands for just eating any kind of meal, and that's why the ESV just translates it the way that they do when they eat. And what they would do here is that they would, they would pour water down the fingers and let it drip off the wrist. And so they would kind of hold their hand like this and they would pour some water on this hand and let it drip off. Then they would turn the hand this way and pour some water and let it drip off. They're not really washing their hands in the way that we think about it, but they would do that and they would do one hand at a time. Um, first this hand, first the other hand, because apparently for some reason, if they washed it like that with both hands at the same time, it wouldn't have made them clean enough in their view. And so they would go one hand at a time. And I think the idea was that it, they thought that if they didn't kind of cleanse themselves of this ceremonial filthiness that got on them, and then they touched food and ate the food with their hands, the the defilement would get inside of them and make them unclean. And so they're very hyper-conscious of being clean. If you go over to Luke chapter 11, look at a verse there. Luke 11, 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table, and that's a way to say that they they ate together. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now in our text, if we go back there, the, the Pharisees came to ask Jesus why his disciples don't practice this washing. And maybe they heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and that no hand washing had happened in that circumstance. Why they don't ask Jesus about, about his practice isn't clear. Perhaps it's, it's the idea that it was viewed as worse to teach others to skip this ceremonial washing than to maybe from time to time not do it yourself. But notice the Pharisees, what they call it here, they call it the tradition of the elders. Now, tradition is what's kind of handed down, that which is handed down. And, and in that day, the tradition was an oral tradition, kind of handed down by word of mouth from one person to the next. Now, about two, well, in, in 200 AD, about 170 years after Jesus, this oral tradition was was written down in what was called, or what is called, the Mishnah. And the Mishnah explained and applied the law to the people. And sometimes they thought about the Mishnah as a a fence around the law. And so they would make rules to even keep you as far away as possible from from the, the possibility of breaking the law. And so they, they added to the law to keep people from, from even getting close to breaking it. And there's a whole section of the Mishnah on the hands, a whole tract on, on the hands, how to keep them clean. 
Now, the Pharisees, they viewed this oral tradition, which was, again, later written into the Mishnah, and probably there would be some changes from the time of Jesus until the Mishnah was written, but they viewed this as authoritative interpretation of the law. And they seem to have regarded it as on par with Scripture. And so there's the accusation. Your disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders. Now, this tradition of the elders, it was actually relatively new at this point, but kind of one rabbi to another, they they would kind of talk about what the previous rabbi said, and so they kind of viewed it as the tradition of the elders. It wasn't like it was hundreds of years old, though. It was, But the, the Pharisees, again, they viewed it as authoritative, and so that's the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's go now, number three, looking at verses three to six, let's see the transgression of the traditionalists. The transgression of the traditionalists. Jesus doesn't even answer their charge. At least not at first, not in our verses for today. And his response is more of a counterattack. Look at verse 3. It says, He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would have been gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, there's a a lot to see here. Notice, first of all, that Jesus calls it your tradition, not the tradition of the elders as the Pharisees called it. It's, It's your tradition. And Jesus sets your tradition opposite from the commandment of God in verse 3. And he calls it the word of God in verse 6. They said, your disciples break the tradition of the elders. Jesus counters, you break the commandment of God. God's word had commanded Israel, verse 4, honor your father and mother. And also, whoever reviles father or mother must surely, must surely die. This is God's command in the, in the Torah. The first one is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. The Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving, giving you. Repeated in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The second commandment is from Exodus 21 and verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And repeated in Leviticus 20 and verse 9, For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Now the Hebrew word there for curses also includes reviling or speaking lightly about someone or to to treat someone lightly or to treat them with contempt. And this honor due to father or mother included the honor of providing for them in their old age. That's what part of what it meant to honor your father and mother is to care for them in their old age. These laws are reiterated even in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children are to honor their parents and, and partly by caring for them as they get older. But the Pharisees had found a way around this. Again, at verse 5, it says, but you say. Verse 4 had just said, for God commanded, but now in contrast to what God commanded, but you say. God commanded one thing, but the Pharisee says something else. By their traditions, they break God's commands. Again, verse 5, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. This is what they called the, the practice of Corban or Corban. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, but this, this was, I'm going to call it Corban, I think, today. And here's how it worked. If a son declared Corban over his goods, he was making a sort of a vow. And he was vowing to give his goods, his land or his possessions or whatever he said Corban over. He was, he was vowing to give it to God. And it was also called a gift. It was a gift to God. And this gift went to the treasure, uh, to the treasury in the temple. Or at least this gift was supposed to go to the treasury in the temple. And, and this is where it's difficult to be clear on this, or, or maybe I should say it's difficult to be certain exactly how this worked. Seems to be different understandings on exactly what, what was happening here. But what is clear is that whatever was declared Corbin, was no longer available to support one's parents. But other than that, it it seems that whatever was declared Corbin was still in the possession and available to the person who declared it. In other words, they didn't have to give it to the temple. At least they didn't have to do that right away. Now, some say when, some say they gave it to the temple when they died, and that's a possibility. Others say that there was a way that they could get out of giving it to the temple and so they could declare it Corbin, not give it to their parents, and then redeclare it Corbin and then keep it for themselves. But however it worked, we, we know that it was used to legally avoid caring for one's parents. In fact, children would often make this vow of Corbin in anger, it seems, and, and it would become a, a way of saying to your parents, you will never get blank. And so in a moment of anger, a son could say, I declare Corbin on my field and that's it. No more. It can't go to the parents anymore. Now, another thing that, that, that happened here, another thing here is that once someone said something was a gift or once someone said something was Corbin, even though they still retained the stuff, they could use it however they wanted, but they were not permitted to use it for their parents. And so even if a, had, a son had a change of heart, And now he wanted to honor his father and his mother. Apparently, he was not able to do so. Once Corbin was declared, it could not be undone. Or if it could be undone, guess who had to undo it? The priests at the temple had to approve it. And that's the same temple where the money was declared to go. And so it seems like it didn't get out of of that very often. Now, verse 6, if you look back at the text, verse 6 is quite strong in the Greek. It could even be translated, he must not honor or he will never honor. Once this was said, the father and the mother would not be honored. 
And after the vow was made, it became illegal. Not in the, not in the sense of the court of law, but it became illegal in a religious sense. It became illegal to honor one's parents with those possessions. Jesus summarizes the whole thing at the end of verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What a counterattack. The Lord just tells, just, just, you know, you just imagine this question, why do your disciples and why do you? Wow. For the sake of their tradition, they made void, they nullified, they invalidated the word of God. And they no longer obeyed God in order to keep their tradition, which was really not from God. And so it was man's ideas imposed on the word of God. And their tradition overrode the word of God. And Jesus calls them out over it. And this is going to be number four in our outline. Jesus calls them out. Number four, the devotion of the hypocrites. Verses seven to nine, the devotion of the hypocrites. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls them hypocrites to their face. And you can, you can see their hypocrisy. They came all the way from Jerusalem to ask a question why his disciples don't ceremonial, ceremonially wash before eating, which again is something that God never commanded. And yet those same traditions allowed them to break God's commands You know, they seem to be so concerned to keep the law, but in reality, they actually break it and they find ways around it. They made it lawful to break God's law, and that's really hypocrisy. They made a show of worship and obedience, but in reality, their own desires and traditions came above God's word. That's hypocrisy. A hypocrite was an actor. He's somebody who's playing a part. He wasn't sincere. And that's what Jesus said about these Pharisees. Your religion isn't real. It's an external show, not a real desire from the heart to be pleasing to God. In Isaiah's day, in the, in the days leading up to the exile, the nation was also like that, as we already saw in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah had spoke about Israel in his day, but Jesus says here that, that he prophesied, Isaiah prophesied about you. Now, I don't think that we understand here that Isaiah was predicting this without knowing it. I think the idea is that Jesus is saying that what Isaiah prophesied about past Israel also fits you. They honored God with their lips, but not in sincerity, not from the heart, and that also fits you. If they honored God from the heart, they would have been concerned to obey him. Because a heart that loves God and that rightly worships God is one that obeys. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. These are the commandments that Israel is breaking. John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
John 14, 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 15, verse 10, If any, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 2 John verse 6, And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. You see, the Pharisees, they loved their traditions more than God. And they they obeyed their traditions and they disobeyed God. And their hypocritical worship was vanity according to the Lord. Again in verse 9, In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They tried to catch the Lord breaking the traditions, but did he ever turn it around on them? Now I'm sure that they didn't like his response. In fact, again in verse 12, then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They were offended. They were offended at, at, at Jesus's response. But you know what's even more important, brothers and sisters? God and His worship. God is offended by hypocrisy and false worship. God is offended when we allow traditions to violate His Word. God is offended when by, by these things, and, and He is a jealous God. He is a God that deserves our full worship. He's a God that deserves our obedience. He's a God that deserves sincere devotion. According to the the statement of faith that I read from earlier, He deserves our fear and love and praise, our prayers, our trust, and our service with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And God is our sovereign God. He is our authority. Now this whole debate here between the Pharisees and Jesus really comes down to the matter of authority. Do we submit to God or not? Do we listen to God or do we listen to some other source? Do we submit to God and His commandments for His worship? Or do we submit to men or to the traditions of men that would change God's worship or add God's worship or remove things from God's worship? Now obviously, if we want to pretend to worship God, we need to worship Him according to His Word. We need to do what He tells us to do. And only God can tell us how to worship Him acceptably. Nobody else can tell us how to worship Him acceptably outside of God. Now, as we think to apply this text to ourselves, I think it would be right to recognize that none of us are tempted at all to follow the Mishnah. At least as far as I know, nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, the Mishnah says X, Y, and Z. Now, perhaps there is somebody there that, here that, that might think that way, but I, I, I'm not aware of it. But there are strong traditions, non-biblical traditions that would vie for our obedience in our lives, in all of our lives. And they would seek to persuade us to slight the biblical commands or to, to regard them kind of lightly or, or loosely or even to disobey the commands of God, the plain commands of God in Scripture in regards to the way that His worship is to be done. 
And these traditions are the commandments of men. They are not the commandments of God and they have no place of authority in our lives. We should not obey the commandments of men. They, they at least, you know, we're free to, to do that. But when it comes to, does this commandment of men, does this tradition draw me away from a plain command of scripture, then I need to follow God and worship him according to his word and reject those commandments. Brothers and sisters, don't mess with a holy God in the matter of his worship. Don't mess with the holy God when it comes to what he has commanded in his word and what is plain in his word. Don't slight him. Don't, don't put yourself and your soul in spiritual danger in that way. You see, we need to be a people and a church that functions according to the word of God. Otherwise, our worship is in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this regard. We ask that you would be glorified in our church and our lives and that you would help us to understand and follow your word and to worship you in a way that is acceptable and that glorifies you. And we thank you that you've given us your word that we might do that. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.